Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. And I just want to say to the family that we met this morning that's from Wilmington, North Carolina, that we have visited there. We're from Virginia originally. We visited Wilmington a number of times when our son, who was in the Coast Guard at that time, was stationed there. They loved Wilmington. It's a beautiful city. Played golf there. Nice golf courses, nice beach. So we're glad to have you here in the mountain region this morning. He's now living in Daytona, so he's at the beach. He's still at the beach. He went from Wilmington eventually to Daytona with the FBI and just retired there. So I think he's going to be a permanent resident in Daytona for a while anyway. Good to have you here, though. This morning, I want to begin with an illustration that's out of my life from many years ago, but I remember watching on TV uh, at a particular time, and supposedly at least a renowned scientist of that day was giving his line on evolutionary thinking. And basically what he was saying was, as an evolutionist and a scientist, that he was seeing over the course of history that every generation was learning from the previous generations. They were sorting out what the mistakes were. He was essentially saying that as man evolved over the centuries, each new generation was getting better. They were learning how to love one another more, care for one another more, show common grace and decency to each other. In other words, civilization was advancing and just getting better and better as time went on. And maybe one day we would even reach a state of utopia. You know what that word means? That would be a neat name for a city that might draw some people. It's a place or state of ideal perfection. I looked it up in the dictionary because I thought, I want to get this right about utopia. But this guy was saying, you know, it's just a matter of time and everything is going to be perfect because we're learning and we're applying and we're getting better and better. Now, I want you to ponder that for a few minutes and compare what we see going on in the world today and in our nation today with what he was saying. How old is this nation now? Over 200 years and we've existed longer than that. So over the last 300 years, if you know history of the United States of America and you looked at today in comparison to where we've been and, and, and how we've advanced, are we getting better? Are, are we doing better? Or are laws better? Is the government doing better that's over us? Are we becoming more loving more caring, more decent in the way that we treat one another? Are we advancing? I would say that if you say yes to that, either you don't know anything about our history, or on the other hand, you've been applying no news November too much. 
about our present situation. Maybe you've been in No News November for the last two decades. If that's what you would say, that yes, he's right. We are getting better and better with each generation. And here's the issue. We're not getting better. You know that, and I know that. We are not getting better. We are getting worse. We are getting less loving, less caring, less decent. Are we passing laws that are more like Scripture? No, we're writing laws that deny what Scripture says. And it's getting worse. And my feeling is it's going to get worse. We're on a path towards destruction. Look at history about the life of nations. Look at the history of Rome. We're not getting better. It is getting worse and worse. With all that in mind, Paul gives us the reason for our world getting worse. We're not learning from previous generations. Even if there was something good to see there, we're not applying it today. And Paul comes along, and one of my favorite, it's got to be in the top three of a paragraph in Scripture, a section of Scripture. This has got to be maybe number one for me. Because in these 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us what we were, what we've been saved from, how we've been saved, and what we've been saved to. It's all here in these 10 verses. If you ever wanted 10 verses of Scripture to sit down and talk to somebody about the gospel, these are the ones I would turn to. It's all here. And it's beautiful. And we can divide it up this way, four parts. Paul's going to talk about in verses 1 to 3, the spiritual condition of men at physical birth. And in essence, their character throughout their life. Unless they experience what's in verses 4 to 7. There he talks about the spiritual trans transformation of men by new birth. 4 to 7. So 1 to 3 is the spir spiritual condition of men as they come into this world. 4 to 7, the spiritual transformation of men by new birth. And then in 8 and 9, the gracious means by which we experience that new birth, by which, by which we come to saving faith. And then lastly, in verse 10, the primary purpose for which we've been saved. So it's all there. It is all there. And, and Paul just lays it out in such a beautiful way. Let's read it. And then we'll look at each section as we go down through it. But look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, 
and indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. I think I'm going to stop there because we'll get to our first point and I'll just read this as we go through. This is Paul telling us how we came into this world, what we were like, what was our nature when we came into this world? What was our nature as we lived in this world, even as we grew and grew to manhood or womanhood? This is such a, a beautiful section. This is the nature of all men, the Apostle Paul says. And notice there are three things that we were bound by that he brings up in, in this in these three verses. Number one, we walked according to this world, according to the course of this world. Secondly, we walked in accordance with the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. Everyone coming into this world their nature is such, they are dead in trespasses and sin, Paul says. Their nature is such, is such that they are encompassed by this world and its philosophy, and they walk in it, and also they are overseen, ruled over by Satan, the prince of darkness, the one who comes along and influences everyone in this life outside of Christ. And then the third thing that is here, he says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh and indulging the desires of the flesh. That's the body that we live in. We're, we're a two-part being. We're spiritual, created in the image of God, and we are fleshly to live in a material world. We have a body. And this body even as believers, fights us. There are the desires of the flesh that Paul will say and other New Testament writers, we must overcome in the power of Christ. But we're a two-part being, and we come into this world with a spiritual part that is dead to God, but alive to the world and Satan and our own fleshly desires, which means that we're number one. We're the ones that we put first. What a, what a condition that we come into this world with. Our nature at birth is bad. And generations and progressing through generations isn't going to change it. We are in bondage to sin, Paul says. We are enslaved to Satan. We are conformed to this world and its principles, which are not God's. This world says, you got to get all you can. You've got to do the best you can. You only live once. Have fun. Do what you want to do. Put yourself first. Make all the money that you want to so you can do the things you want to do. This is the nature of every individual. And by the way, even as believers... The world is still an enemy, Satan is still an enemy, and our flesh is still an enemy because 
Paul is going to tell us in verses 4 to 7 that what's been changed about us, the most important thing in becoming a Christian is that we have been born again. We've become a new creature in Christ Jesus. That part of us which was created in the image of God, which we were born with dead to God, has been made alive. Made alive. That's what he's going to talk about in verses 4 to 7. But folks, the people in this world outside of Christ that have been born that are living right now, that were living in the past without Christ. They were born dead spiritually and enslaved and encompassed by these severe enemies. And again, we fight them today as Christians, but the difference now is that we have the power. We've been changed on the inside, and not only do we have a new spirit, but the spirit of the living God has come in to indwell that new spirit and give direction and give power. Can you just imagine that for a minute? There's nothing we can do to change people in the world. We can't give them a course on how to behave and how to be better because they're not going to get better. And Paul says, Ephesians, among them we too all formerly lived. This is the way we were. This is your past, he says. This is what you've been saved from. Isn't that amazing? That one day in our lives, if you're here this morning and you know Christ and you've become a Christian, the Spirit of God gave you life and changed you on the inside and made you a new creature and gave you a new hope and a hope of eternity with Christ. That is an amazing, glorious, precious thing. This is the way that we were. We were blinded by Satan. We could not get those blinders off by ourselves. We were ensnared by the world deceived by our fleshly desires that say, put yourself first. That's the way everyone, that's the way your neighbor is. That's the way everyone outside of Christ in this world is. I don't care if they're the president of a country, a leader, a senator. It doesn't make any difference what their position in this life is. This is their nature. And they're in bondage to sin. And we need to be praying, even as we go forth with the gospel, that the Spirit of God would change them. When we're raising our children, we must know that our children, unless they become believers at some point in their lives, are lost. And we're to live before them and we're to witness before them, but be praying that the Spirit of God would give them life. So Paul starts off with the bad news. This is the way we come into the world. But here is the good news. Here's the good news. 
the spiritual transformation of men by new birth. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, that's what's happened to you. Verses 4 to 7, let's look at those. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him positionally. We're there, seated already. We, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones one time preach on this section, and boy, he could make that but God come alive. But God. This is what we were. This is how we were. There was no, nothing in us that could change us. We could not do anything to make a difference in our lives whatsoever. But God. But God. Because of his great love and his kindness, he came along and he infused life into us, spiritual life. Spiritual life. First, it was all the result of a powerful and supernatural work of God that we've become a Christian, that we've been changed. In spite of our spiritual deadness and helplessness and sin and being an enemy of God because of his great love, he gave us life. He changed us on the inside. There's been a resurrection already of the inner man, of the spiritual part of us created in the image of God that was lost because of the first Adam and his sin against God. And because of that, every child born since Adam has come into this world with a nature that is bound up in sin, is dead towards God, but God, in his mercy, has given life to the ones he's bringing to himself. He made us spiritually alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places. We've been raised up, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, to newness of life. When Christ died and was raised from the dead, the Spirit of God raised us up and will raise us up bodily one day when he comes back again. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come. All new things have come. Think about that for a minute. You were dead one day in trespasses and sin. 
walking according to the course of this world, following the lead of Satan and doing his bidding and giving into your fleshly desires and you were enslaved to that whole process and situation. But God out of his love one day made you spiritually alive. Spiritual deadness was removed. You've become alive, you have a relationship with him and his spirit comes in to live within you and give you power. He did this, powerful supernatural act of God. And as a result, we are different people. We are changed, we are new in Christ. We have different desires and we have different ability. We can tell, we can tell the temptations of our flesh to get lost in power and strength. We can walk, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, in the strength of the Spirit. We can overcome Satan. We can overcome the world. If we have to, we can one day be martyred for Christ if that's what he desires for us. Remember when he had a talk with Peter after his resurrection? And Peter repented of his sin. And he told Peter how he was going to die. And Peter says, well, what about him? And he said, you, you leave how I'm going to deal with him to me. I'm talking to you. But a believer is a new creature. He has life that's the most important thing about being a Christian. It's not going forward in a church meeting. It's not signing a card. It's not praying a certain prayer. It's having life, spiritual life, given by a gracious God to those that were his enemies, those who are walking in darkness. He now brings light and he enables them to walk in the light for the rest of of their lives. Notice verse 7 here again too. In order that all of this done, he's, he has saved us, raised us up. He has seated us in the heavenly places positionally. We are there. Christ is waiting for us. There's already a place. We've been seated in it spiritually and we're headed to that. And then he says this in verse 7, in order that in all of the centuries, the ages that are to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. We're going to be on display for eternity to be seen as the riches of the glory of the salvation that he's given to us. Not merited, not merited. He did not do this. He did not save me and save you because he looked down through time and he said, you know, I see that guy. He's from Arlington, Virginia. He was raised there. Um, and there's something good in him. I'm going to pick him. I'm going to make him mine. He didn't do that because there was nothing good in me nor in you. I was a slave to sin. 
If I didn't study too hard for a, a test, sometimes I would cheat. If, if I didn't, or if I got caught doing something that was wrong with my parents or someone, I can still remember coming to school one day in high school, and I had skipped school with some of my friends and gone to Richmond and investigated all the cigarette factories, which I hate to admit, but it was true. And so I had to come, and I had written a letter. My dad had a signature stamp, and I had written a letter to excuse me from school and stamped his signature stamp on it and gave it to the counselor as I was coming back to school the next day. And he looked at it and said, nice letter. Did you write it? And I said, yep, I did. He said, well, let's go see the principal. So I learned a lesson. But it didn't change me. When I got in trouble, I would lie. I was lost. But God, in his grace, one night, changed my life completely. But God raised me up. But God gave me life. But God forgave me. But God seated me in the heavenly places. And folks, he's done that with you if you are a believer. It's not of you. It's of him. It's by his grace. He did it. And this, these, the third section here in verses 8 and 9, tell us what our part is. The gracious means. Our part is this. An empty hand saying, thank you, Lord. I believe in your son. I repent of my sins. I thank you that you're gracious. That you have forgiven me. I'm not worthy. I never was. Look, look at these two verses. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now look at where I want to go. For by grace, verse 8, you have been saved through faith. Two of my favorite verses. And that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Is there any boasting when it comes to our salvation? Is there anything that we can boast in? Can we say, well, you know, I'm different than the other guy because I believed, I had faith. Yes, the faith is ours, and we, that's the means that God connects us with him. We believe in him. It's not by works. It's not by anything that we do have done. It's simply, again, receiving by faith what he has done for us and thanking him. Repentance, belief, thanksgiving for what he's done, 
but the work is of him. And notice again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. In the Greek language, the that not of yourselves brings in the whole first clause. What's in the first clause? For by grace, unmerited favor, through faith, through faith, you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. Neither the grace nor the faith is ultimately of ourselves. Yes, it's my faith, but it's He that enabled it. And faith is not a work. Faith is simply acknowledging my need and His provision for me and receiving it and thanking Him for it. That's pretty humbling, isn't it? You can't do anything to earn it. He does it all. And, and remember this, folks. The price by which he gave us life and faith, the price was costly for his son. Jordan, I love the songs that you picked this morning. Really did. So encompassing of Christ giving himself. Not only did he die on the cross, and not only did he suffer physically, he suffered the wrath of God upon himself for my sin and your sin and the sins of everyone. And that was serious. Can you imagine what he went through on that cross? He was the sin bearer. He became sin for us. And we receive this. The means is faith, which is a gift, which is receiving, acknowledging, and thanking God. What a marvelous salvation. When you preach the gospel to people that are lost, and you should, and you should live it before them, which is the next point, remember to pray because the only way they're going to get it is if their eyes, the eyes of their heart are opened and their ears are opened and they hear and are enabled by God because he's made them new. That's the only way they're going to get it. You can't do it with your persuasive words. You can't do it with your good life. It's the gospel and the spirit and the giving of life that changes hearts. We need a new heart. The last thing is verse 10. Look at it with me. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What purpose did he redeem us for? Well, ultimately, I think, I would say the primary purpose here certainly is the good works. But what do the good works come from? You remember what Jesus said in, in uh, the Gospel of John, I will know. You, I will know that you love me by what? Your works, your life, 
the way you're living. Your love will be shown. The primary motive of, for doing anything as a Christian is love for him, a thankful heart to the God who redeemed me and changed me and made me new. I'm not perfect in this life and neither are you, but I'm no longer in bondage. I'm living in the power of the Spirit. I'm confessing. I'm overcoming. I'm living a different way, a different life with different power. And one day we will be perfect when we have a new body and we are with him in the new heavens and new earth. But Paul says here, I want to tell you, this is what you were. This is the way you lived. This is what has changed about you. Your, your part in this was to believe and receive and to have faith. That was your part. It's all of God. And then he says, he did that so that in this life, you would manifest what he's done by your good works by the works that are pleasing to him, by living in such a way that you are becoming more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that you're more like him in the way you think, in the way you walk, in the way you live, in the way you talk to people, in the way you treat people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Put others ahead of you. Love the members of the body supremely. Put them ahead of yourself. That's the way we're to live. Well, how can we do that? Because we have been changed. Because we have the Spirit's power to call on, to live by. That's how we do it. And we do it because we love Him. And we thank Him. And we want to be like Him. We want to be like His Son. So we live with a new heart. In love with Him and doing good works. Good works which God has before prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. They've been ordained. They've been prepared before the foundation of the world. These works that now we're called to walk in, and that's costly too, isn't it? We're to put others ahead of ourselves, agape love, we're to recognize that everything we have belongs to him and we need to use it the way he wants us to use it. If that means to help others, so be it. How much of it can you take with you? You ever see a hearse go down the road pulling a U-Haul? There's nothing that can go. It's all his and it's to be used here for his honor and for his glory out of a heart of love. Out of a heart of love. That's why James comes along and he says, show me your faith by your works. There's no disharmony between James and Paul. None whatsoever. The Christian is one who is different he has a new nature, he has a new, a new power, and he is to live in a way that honors the Lord with all of his strength, in all of his might, and all of his power. 
Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 7 with me for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now I'm going to turn over in addition to that and read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the grace of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, the reason I want you to think about these verses for a minute is even if you were to say to me, well, um, yeah, my faith, my faith is really something from me and it, and it came from my understanding. Here's what the scripture says. None understand. None seek God. Not even one. We can't. Because we can only understand a spiritual God spiritually, and we're spiritually dead and blinded. This is why we have nothing to boast about whatsoever. Christians ought to be the most thankful people in all the world. Because we have been redeemed, we've been changed, we've been seated in the heavenly places. We've been given life and hope and eternity with Christ. What more is there to be thankful for? Thanksgiving is coming up in a couple of days. This is the most supreme thing that we have to be thankful for. We were lost. We were undone. On our way to a Christless eternity in darkness and suffering that was, our, that was our future. But God, but God changed us and gave us life. And if we believe that, we need to be taking that message to our family, to neighbors, to friends. We need to be living it. We need to put it, be putting it on display, but we need to be speaking it that He changed me, and Christ can change you. And it's through the gospel that change comes. Take that message out. Live that message and be thankful people. I want to close with this illustration. Maybe, maybe you've heard it before. It's the story of a man who lived in a neighborhood with an elementary school very close to him that he had to drive by every morning on the way to his job. And the story goes like this. This man, as he's driving every morning, you know, when it's not summer anyway, during the nine months of school, on his drive to work by the school, here are the patrols and police some days, and here is the sign saying 15 miles an hour or stop. But as would, life would normally have it for this man, 
Sounds like me before I was saved. He was kind of habitually late to work. So how do you think he went by the school? Did he obey? Did he go 15? Did he, was he very careful for all these kids? No. He was not. But one day, not too long later, his little six-year-old daughter started attending that school. And guess what? He drove differently when he went by the school. He drove at 15 miles an hour. He stopped when he was supposed to. He didn't care if he was late to work. His daughter was now attending there. He had a different view. You see, it was a hard issue. Someone that he loved was now walking those sidewalks, crossing the street, going to that school. That's what Paul is saying right here has happened to us. It's a hard issue. The most important thing in the salvation of men and women is the work of the Spirit of God to change us, free us, deliver us from bondage and slavery to sin, and set us free so that we can follow Him. What? I don't know how to even describe how we should feel. To have an eternal hope, to be seated in the heavenlies with Christ when I didn't deserve it. But he did it. And I will be eternally grateful. And I hope you will be too. These 10 verses are just powerful. They proclaim the change that all men need and how it happens. It is by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest we should boast. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your salvation. We have not earned it. There was nothing good in us that you foresaw. But out of your love and kindness, you minister to needy people. Father, we will be eternally grateful, and we pray that we will take this same message that was used to save us to a lost and dying world, that we would live it, that we would preach it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.